A reading from John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb raised him from, and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I wanted to uh, show you one of my favorite TED Talks. Anybody here watch TED Talk videos? Anybody watch TED Talks? They're like 18, 20 minutes. If you haven't seen them and they're around, usually around technology or different things going on in the world. But this is the shortest TED Talk I've ever seen. And it's actually one of my favorite TED Talks. And I wanted to share it with you this morning because it kind of starts us in on what was happening on Palm Sunday. So this is about creating a movement. Let's run the video. Ladies and gentlemen, at TED, we talk a lot about leadership and how to make a movement. So let's watch a movement happen, start to finish, in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. First, of course you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. <laughs> but what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Now there he is calling to his friends. Now if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself. It takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. <laughs> and here comes a second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and the crowd is news. So a movement must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers, because you find that new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. <laughs> so notice that as more people join in, it's less risky. So those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They won't stand out. They won't be ridiculed, but they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. So, <laughs> over the next minute, you'll see all of the, uh, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they would be ridiculed for not joining in. And that's how you make a movement. But, let's recap some lessons from this. So, first, if you are the type 
like the shirtless dancing guy that is standing alone. Remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about the movement, not you. <laughs> okay, but we might have missed the real lesson here. The biggest lesson, if you noticed, did you catch it? Is that leadership is over-glorified. That yes, it was the shirtless guy was first, and he'll get all the credit, but it was really the first follower that transformed the lone nut into a leader. So as we're told that we should all be leaders, that would be really ineffective. If you really care about starting a movement, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in. And what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. <laughs> Right, still going. All right, there you go. Sorry, I thought it was over. All right. Well, you know, I think about that. You know, one of the things I learned early on in leadership is if you want to be a great leader, you have to first be a great follower. And we as Christians are followers of Jesus Christ. And so what we do is we actually show others how to follow Jesus. And one of that illustrated there was this idea that you get from one lone nut, by the way, I do not equate Jesus as a lone nut or a shirtless dancing guy, but you to, to elite, to followers, and there were a few followers, and then it created a movement, right? And so what we see on Palm Sunday is the movement, the movement, right? And what is threatening to the Pharisees and the leaders of that day is this movement. But you know, Jesus is not a lone nut, and I'm also surprised that when the Pharisees start to accuse Jesus, they don't actually accuse him of being a lunatic or a shirtless dancing guy or a lone nut. They don't accuse him of any of those things. It reminded me of a great verse, a famous quote, not verse, but a famous quote by C.S. Lewis when people were saying, well, Jesus is just a good moral teacher or just a, a nice guy. And what C.S. Lewis' response was this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now I wanted you to notice something that in the scriptures that happened as the religious leaders confront the movement of Jesus Christ, they never accuse him of being a lunatic. They do at one point accuse him of being in league with the devil, which quickly goes away. But as we unpack what's happening from the religious leader's point of view, what we'll start to see is that what they were reacting against was not a, just a good moral teacher or a lunatic, but against a king. <laughs> they were reacting against a king and a movement, and that threatened their way of life. That threatened their order. That threatened their system. Now, if you look through the Gospel of John, actually earlier in John, they had, they had gathered, the Sanhedrin and the, their Pharisees and the, and the other religious leaders got together in a judicial council called the Sanhedrin. All the religious leaders came together in court and they began to discuss this movement of Jesus Christ. And one of the things they said in John chapter 11, 48, before we get to Palm Sunday was this. It says, if we let him go on like this, Everyone, right, hear that word? Everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, notice how they have taken, they've seen this movement and this leader called Jesus as this threat, not only to their temple system, but to the whole nation of Israel. They're afraid that Rome is gonna come in and take over because they had this kind of 
they had this agreement. The religious leaders had an agreement with the governor uh, that was overseeing from Rome. And so there's this agreement going on. Then if you notice, the other thing that happens in the movement is that one of the things that happens in the movement is that Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. So what happens is Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus as he's been in there for four days. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And so what happens is people start to get curious. They want to see Lazarus. They want to see this person that's been resurrected from the dead. And so they want to go see Lazarus. And so that's what we see at the beginning of Palm Sunday. It says, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were, what? Going over to Jesus and believing in him. So Lazarus was a part of the movement. He was a part of increasing the movement of followers of Jesus the leader. So this created a problem. And then that brings us to Palm Sunday. And Jesus is coming, riding in on a donkey, which was a symbol of peace. A peaceful kingship is basically what he's bringing. He's he's riding in as 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 a king into the city of Jerusalem, but he's also riding in in such a way that he's saying, I'm bringing peace. I'm not bringing for, I'm not coming to force things. I'm not coming to to act in force, but I'm actually coming to act in peace. And yet the people are laying palm branches at his feet as he comes into Jerusalem. Now, part of that symbolism may have been that the palm branches could have also been symbols of revolt. That not only were they shouting, Hosanna, save us, but those palm branches could have represented to the Pharisees and religious leaders the symbol of revolt. (laughs) That, hey, the king is coming to take over the new king and establish this new kingdom. And so they're laying the palm branches down, hoping that he is going to bring this new kingdom about. They want this external change. They want the Roman government gone. They want the religious leaders out of power. And so Jesus represents this hope for them. And so they lay down the palm branches in revolt. And that's where we see the Pharisees saying, so they said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See, what they're seeing at that, on that Palm Sunday was what they had already suspected, that this movement was growing, that this movement was increasing. And now the people were hailing him as king, and not only the people of Jerusalem, but also the other people from other nations that were coming. And they were laying palm branches. The Greeks were coming and laying palm branches. Other people of other nations. And also, he's, they say, the whole world has gone after him. They're saying, they're, so they're seeing people of other ethnicities following Jesus and laying palm branches down before Jesus. But this word world that we translate world is the word, Greek word cosmos, which we use, right? It's, I'm not talking about Cosmopolitan magazine, or, but cosmology or the order or the system of things, the systems of the universe, how the universe works, right? And so in a sense, what they're saying is the whole world order is being disrupted by Jesus. The, our whole world is being upset by Jesus. And so they're not too happy. Because things are changing, and Jesus represents change. And even when they bring, later in the week, as we go through Holy Week, we find out later in the week, they bring Jesus before Pilate. And it's interesting, if you look at the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, when they're taking him to Pilate, it says in John twenty twelve, Pilate actually tried to set Jesus free, because he could find no case against him. But the Jewish leaders, notice who's shouting here in the text? But the Jewish leaders keep shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
Again, the religious leaders are now using the triumphal entry, the the Palm Sunday, the entrance of Jerusalem, hailing him as king. They're now using that as a case against Jesus to crucify him because they want him gone. They want to get rid of him. This is the politics behind the crucifixion of Jesus because he had created a movement. And they could see how this shirtless dancing guy (laughs) had somehow gotten all these followers and they couldn't understand it. And so they said, let's get rid of Jesus. But before we go accusing the Pharisees, it'd be real easy to pick on the religious leaders. What about you? Do you really want Jesus to be your king? Because you know, the people, the day that they came and they laid palm branches before him, they wanted him to be king, but they wanted his kingdom. They wanted his kingdom more than they wanted him, I think. They wanted him, they wanted the change he represented, they wanted the kingdom he represented, they wanted this new kingdom, but I'm not so sure that they all wanted to make him king of their lives. And I think about that. Who's your king today? Who is your king? And is it that, is it, could it be possible that you like the idea of this external kingdom being imposed on everybody else, right? We, we kind of want the kingdom in the world, but I'm asking you personally, I'm asking me personally, I'm asking us individually, is Jesus our king? Are, are we willing to make Jesus our king? Because you gotta keep in mind that those same people who laid palm branches on Sunday were the same ones saying crucify him on Friday. How do you go from saying, King, Hosanna, save us to crucify him in a week? Maybe because they wanted the kingdom, they just didn't want the king, right? Do you want the king as well as the kingdom? Because I would suggest to you that for the kingdom to come, the place to start is for the king to reside in us, to be ruling in us Paul said, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and my heart that we need to make Jesus our king. But I'm not so sure we like that idea either, just like the religious leaders didn't like the idea. (laughs) Why is that? Because there are some enemies lurking within us. There are some enemies of of the king lurking within each of us. And I wanna point out a few of those this morning and let let us wrestle with them. The first one I would say is materialism. I think materialism is one of those things we just don't want to give up for the king. We like our material things. We like our bank accounts. We like our retirement funds. Why? Why, why do we like having a savings account, a retirement fund, a, uh, a bank account with money? Why do we like that? It represents security. Right, yeah, who said that? Security, right. And security, that brings security to us. What, what, was, what was bringing security to the Pharisees and religious leaders? The system, the agreement with the Roman government, everything was status quo. Let's keep everything secure, right? Jesus was threatening the security of Jerusalem. Materialism threatens our, when Jesus comes in and starts to mess with our materialism, we start to get a little antsy. We get a little insecure. Or think about all the ways that we allow materialism and material things and homes and technology and comforts to insulate us from the harshness of the rest of the world. Notice how we're, we've become, I think, as a society more insular. We kind of insulate ourselves. We cocoon ourselves off from the rest of the world. I mean, how many of us really know our neighbors real well? Why? Because we've all insulated ourselves, right? 
because our materialism has caused us to move towards insulation and security. And then Jesus comes along. I don't know if you read the Gospels, but this king and this kingdom, he says to one young man, this rich young ruler, he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. And what happens to that rich young ruler when Jesus says that to him? He, he goes away dejected. He chooses not to follow the king because he knows he was very wealthy. He couldn't let go of his security, his material possessions. But then I'm also reminded of another story in the Gospels where Jesus comes to a tax collector named Zacchaeus, a very wealthy man, and says to him, I'm coming to your house today to have dinner. And Zacchaeus immediately says, I will return half of everything I owe to people because he had been cheating people out of their money as a tax collector. He returns half of what he had to everybody else. And he says, if I've cheated anybody, I give back four times the amount I cheated them. Not the, the, the law only required two times, but he says, I'll give four times as much back. And what was Jesus' response to that? Notice, I want you to know something about Zacchaeus. Did he pray a sinner's prayer? No. <laughs> did, did he go to the altar in, a, in the synagogue and give his life to Christ? No. What, what was the salvation about? It was the salvation of the checkbook. He gave away his wealth. And, his, and you know what Jesus' response to that was? Today, salvation has come. That the moment that Zacchaeus lets go of his materialism, salvation comes, right? That's a difference from the rich young ruler and the other wealthy tax collector, Zacchaeus. See, materialism is sometimes an enemy of the king. I would say another enemy is our individualism. We like to be individuals, don't we? You know, I, I've noticed something in, ever since I moved to Seattle. Uh, if you didn't know, we moved here in November uh, from the East Coast. And, and as I've been wandering around the city of Seattle and as I've been bumping into people and seeing this, the culture of Seattle, I all of a sudden have this urge to get a tattoo. Have you all had this urge? I'm starting to think about what kind of tattoos I would get, you know. I'm thinking, you know, like a, a tattoo here and a tattoo here that it, then when I give the benediction, it would say like, you know, <laughs> truth and grace, go in peace, you know, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> thinking about how to weave that tattoo in. Or, you know, I, you know, how many piercings should I get, I wonder. <laughs> but why is that? What, what is it about our culture? And I think that's not just Seattle. I think that's actually all across the, uh, the United States but we're becoming very expressive. We want to express our individuality, right? We want other people to know who we are. And oftentimes I'll talk to people and I'll ask them, I say, so what's, tell me about your, your body art. I call it body art, I guess, is the per proper terminology. So tell me about that. There's always a story behind that, right? There's something that happened. And, but occasionally I do come across a person who says, well, that was just a drunk night in Mexico. You know, there's no real story there, right? But but I think a lot of times it, there's a story there. People want to express themselves, their individuality, right? And I think a lot of this individual expressionism is what's going on in our culture. We like our individuality, right? We like our autonomy. We like our control. Just like the Pharisees, just like the religious leaders like to have the control on the religious system, make sure everything was the way it was supposed to be. We don't want to give up control to, to a king. We like our autonomy. We like our individualism. And Jesus threatens our individuality because we really don't like authority as a people. 
We, we rebel against authority. We say authority is bad. It's not good. Look at all the terrible leaders we've had throughout history. We don't, we don't want that. We don't want a dictator in our lives. But that's because we don't know Jesus as a leader. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus' leadership was one of compassion and love. Jesus was not a dictator. See, I, I agree, we should rebel against dictators, but I would say to you that Jesus, the king, Jesus is not a dictator. He is a compassionate king. He is a loving king. He is a king that wants what is best for you in your life. He doesn't come to be a dictator. He comes to rule with love and grace and truth, which we all need, right? I think about that and, and that, you know, one of the things I love about the kingship of Jesus is that he walked among us. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like. He's one of those kings that puts on the rags of the peasants and walks among the people. When he did that, he took on flesh. He was incarnated. He walked among us. He felt what we felt. He was tempted the way we were tempted. He, he had pain like we had pain. He had joy like we had joy. He knows what it's like to be human. He is one who walked among us and has compassion for us. He's not a dictator. The other thing I think gets in the way too is traditionalism. I think we like our routine, don't we? I mean, the Pharisees like their routines, like their systems, like having everything in order. And have you ever noticed that the times, I want you to notice and pay attention to when you get stressed out. Have you ever noticed when you get frustrated, when you get stressed out? When, when is that? Let me, let me offer a, a suggestion. You, how many people have a morning routine? Morning routine, come on, yeah. We all have a morning routine, right? So do you notice how you get a little frustrated when that morning routine is not going like you expect it? Have you ever noticed that? Like what throws off the morning routine? What throws it off? Go ahead, answer that one. What, coffee? Did you say coffee or Puppy. Puppy, oh, that's it, all right, I'm looking, I'm like, I didn't hear that voice. Yeah, a puppy, a puppy will disrupt the morning routine, right? What, what else disrupts your morning routine? Oh boy, everybody's got it now, right? So kids, right? Kids don't always do what you expect them to do. What else, what else did I hear? The news, right? You turn on the news, which I would say don't do that, read your Bible, don't turn on the news, that would help, right? But the news, right? You hear what's on the news and it just stirs you up. What's that, your job? Well, you have to go to work. I mean, I was not, right, yeah. Because you have, you have materialism, right? So you have to get right. So, um, but what, I, so what, what about traffic? Nobody said, anybody think traffic? You know, have you ever noticed that you've got it all down time to get to work, right? And then there's traffic and then that frustrates you and it throws, because you're out of your routine. It's messing with your routine, it's messing with your tradition. Your routine is your tradition. <laughs> and, you're, and if you get caught up and stuck in traditionalism, meaning that I have to have this routine, I don't know why, I can't explain why, there's no meaning to it, I just have to have it, that's traditionalism. And I think about that, how often we can get hung up on that. I think of the, you know, I think about one I learned recently that Seattle is one of the most unchurched and dechurched cities in the nation. We're number three in terms of de-churched people. 
in, this, in the nation. Number three, third largest, third city in the nation that is de-churched. That means what people have chosen to do is sleep in on Sunday mornings. Why is that? Because we like our sleep. We like our routine, right? And Jesus comes and says, I want you to go to worship on Sundays or Saturdays whenever worship happens. And we go, whoa, whoa, Jesus, that messes with my routine. My routine need for good sleep. And I think the reason that we've started to edge our way away from the Sabbath and the routine of actually religious practice of Sabbath is because we've overcommitted ourselves the other six days of the week so much that the only thing we have left is God's day, is the Lord's day. And so because we've overextended ourselves so much for six days, we then start to take from the seventh. Although one of the Ten Commandments is that we honor the Sabbath. We don't want the king to tell us to do that. We like our routine. And I think the last thing I would share with you that is hedonism. Are you a heathen? Do you have hedonism? Hedonism is the desire, the pursuit of pleasure. And I think the, the kingship of Jesus threatens our hedonism. I'm a hedon. I have hedonism in my life. It's part of my morning routine. It's called coffee. Is not coffee the pursuit of pleasure? Come on, can I get a witness here today? <laughs> I will tell you, my family will tell you, do not talk to dad before he has his first cup of coffee. The, the, the dragon will come out. So you have to wait for the dragon to be subdued by the caffeine, right? Before, it's, but cup two is probably a good time to have a discussion with dad, right? It's not only a part of my new routine, but I would say it's a part of my hedonism. It's part of my, my, my pursuit of pleasure. Thanks, John, for illustrating that this morning. Sorry, thank you. Poor John gets picked on. But if you think about this, you know, what is it that we're pursuing in our life? What are, are we pursuing pleasure? What are the other places in your life that you're pursuing pleasure? I would tell you, I, think about this. I had this thought this week. And I'm glad that Jesus hasn't asked me to do this, but have, I had this thought. What if Jesus came to me one morning and said, Matt, get rid of the coffee, right? What if somebody came to you and said, no more coffee for you? How would you react if the king said, no more coffee, right? I, I don't know that I would follow that king. I think I would have to, you know, reconsider my kingship, right? Who was king of my life, right? Why? Because that's part of our humanity, that's part of our reaction to someone, to, to surrendering rule and reign of our lives over to someone who actually may have a better plan for our lives than we do ourselves, but we have a hard time letting go of our pursuit of pleasure. You see, I think a lot of times we, like the people on Palm Sunday, we want the values of the kingdom in the world. You know, we, we want the kingdom to happen in the world. We want the kingdom to happen for the rest of the world, particularly our politicians and our governments. We, yeah, we want that kingdom out there. We want this kingdom, but I'm not so sure we always want the king in us, reigning in us, ruling in us. We want the kingdom for everybody else, but we rarely submit to the king ourselves. And you know, we all know this intuitively though, that if you really want the kingdom, where does the kingdom start? With us. <laughs> if we wanna see the kingdom in the world, we actually have to first submit ourselves to the king for that kingdom to come, for God's will to be done. Guess where it starts? With you and me, 
submitting, surrendering our lives to the king. That's where the kingdom starts. And we're not surrendering to a dictator. We're surrendering to a king who loves us deeply and wants the best for us, wants the kingdom for us, and wants more than materialism for us, wants more than individualism for us, wants more than traditionalism for us, wants more than hedonism for us. He's saying to us, there are better things than those things in your life if you would just surrender them to the king. You know, I think the king wants for us a life of purpose, a life of contentment that, that, that materialism won't provide, a life of purpose that coffee won't provide, hedonism won't provide, a, a life of surrender, peace and surrender that individualism will not provide, and a life of relationship that, again, individualism will not provide, a life of community and love that will not be provided by those isms that we've talked about. See, Jesus calls us to be king, calls us and invites us into the kingdom, and he says, Follow me, the king. Be a part of my movement in the world. Don't put it on everybody else. It starts with you, it starts with me. Be a part of the kingdom by surrendering to the king. I want to suggest to you a little bit further how this works by way of food. How many people like going out to dinner? I like going out to dinner. I particularly, at one phase of my life, which I don't do anymore, but I used to like to go to buffets. Why do we like buffets? The price, right? But I think the other thing we like about buffets, or at least what I liked about buffets, was you got a plate, right? And you would go up to the buffet and you would take your plate and they would have more food than you could imagine and they would have all the stuff that was bad for you, right? Fried chicken, prime rib with fat on it, mashed potatoes with gravy, lots of salt, lots of butter, right? Glaze this, glaze that. Big old fat, warm dinner rolls. Anybody getting hungry for lunch right now? All right, right? And what we did was, so we take our plate and, and when I'm going through the buffet, who's in control of what's on my plate? Me, right? I get to decide what I eat. I get to decide what's on my plate and I'm gonna pick all the stuff that I wanna eat. It's my plate. Isn't that what we do with our lives? Isn't that how we look at our lives? We, we take our lives and our life is like that plate and we say, I'm gonna put on my, in my life what I want, what makes me feel good, what I like. And I just heap it on and I pile it on and pile it on until I don't even have any more room left on my plate. And then I go, God, God King, Jesus, what? I ain't got no room for that. How many people here would like a personal chef? I would, yeah. I had a personal chef, did you know that? In fact, I probably still do. Um, but her name was Mom. For, mo for the first 18 to 20 years of my life, depending on when I was home or not in college, I had a personal chef. 
And you know what I did when I had a personal chef? I had a plate and I sat on the dinner table and the chef put on my plate whatever was good for me. And I, you know what I did? I ate it. Every night. Did I complain? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You put some broccoli on my plate? Uh-uh. Lima beans, you get, there's not enough butter in the world to put on lima beans. <laughs> I am a fan of Brussels sprouts. I do like Brussels sprouts. Again, if you put enough cheese sauce on them, they're really good. <laughs> but my mom loved me, right? My mom wasn't a dictator, but I could have thought, I could have complained. There were times where I go, mom's dictating my meal, my, my food intake to me, right? How many people remember your personal chef? I don't know about your personal chef, but my personal chef, whether it's mom or dad or brother or sister or someone else, my personal chef loved me, loved me. And my personal chef always put something on my plate that was good for me. And every night I surrendered to my personal chef because I knew she loved me. I'm not asking us to surrender to a king who doesn't love us. <laughs> I'm not asking us to surrender. I'm asking you to take the plate of your life and just give it to the king <laughs> and say, Jesus, put on this plate what is best for me <laughs> and for your kingdom, <laughs> for my growth and your kingdom's growth. That's what it means to make Jesus king, to let him be your <laughs> your leader and to surrender your life to him. So my hope for you today and my hope for me today is that we not simply just wave palm branches to the king, but that we actually surrender to the king. Let's pray together.